All right. And with that, whoop, oh, hold up. We're going to wait for this motorcycle. Your cat's riding past our house. <laughs> Get him under control, Connor. <laughs> I, uh, he just loves to go the distance. <laughs> go the distance. <laughs> Speaking of Boston. Is cake from Boston? No, I was thinking of Field of Dreams where they're at the game in Boston and they hear he hears the voice telling him to go the distance. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they're at the game at Fenway Park. Go the distance. Oh my god, end this episode, Peter. <laughs> no. You asked for it, you got it. I'm sticking sticking to this. All right. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, executive producer for H2 Oh Yeah, a collection of the world's wettest records, from Mystic Mood Orchestra to Bon Jovi. (laughs) Jeremy looks mortified. (laughs) That grossed me out more than it should. (laughs) Yeah. I should have taken a video of that reaction. You should have. I just got thinking about Bon Jovi. It was, mm. like, <laughs> it was the Bon Jovi part. Yeah. <laughs> Where's Barbara Streisand font? <laughs> <laughs> it's all in there. Well, I got to tell you guys, I'm co-host Jeremy, and I'm also a little grossed out about this whole situation going on for me. My buddy, Marshall Allen, he's trying to plan his 100th birthday coming up, right? Marshall Allen from the Sun Ra Orchestra? That's the one. <laughs> also your buddy. buddy. Yeah. <laughs> also my buddy, who I'm planning a party with, except he really wants to cover the entire Snack Attack album. Mm. By Godly and Cream? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he wants to name the band for it the Mythic Foods Orchestra. Wow. Wow. What are you going to do? Are yeah. you going to say yes? I have to. He's turning 100. You I can't, can't turn him down. Yeah, I can't tell a 100-year-old no. It's your buddy. <laughs> He's my buddy, and that's the rules. <laughs> All right. Ismism. I am co-host Peter Cook, and when people approach me on the street and ask if I am co-host Peter from I'd Buy That for a Dollar, which happens pretty frequently... I always reply, I was, I am, and I will be. Mm. And then you disappear into a puff of smoke. Exactly. (laughs) Joining us today on I'd Buy That for a Dollar is the owner of Little Lost Records in Connecticut. Welcome to the program, Connor Ryan. Hey guys, it's good to be here. Yeah, um, love the show. I found out about you guys originally because uh, I listened to your Paul Winter episode because uh, my boss, Paul Winter, <laughs> um, <laughs> you may have heard of him, <laughs> made me scour the internet for podcasts uh, about him. And uh, it's been a great time listening through the catalog ever since, and I'm really happy to be here. So would that make you the former assistant of aspiring lawyer and CIA asset, Paul Winter? 
You'd be correct. Wow. Put that on a business card. <laughs> Already do. Yep. Right below the record store. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, Connor, this is an honor. Honor to be here, guys. So there was great deliberation as to what record we should pick. Uh, Connor and I were throwing out a couple different options, and we decided to go with today's selection, The Mystic Moods Orchestra, Awakening, from 1973. Yeah, this is an awesome record that you actually put me onto. The you know, Mystic Moods are someone I've flipped through uh, about a billion times in the dollar bins, and never once thought to put on, even as I was, you know, pricing them out and all that. And it's been kind of really fun to go through and dig through their catalog and especially this record and uh, find out all about the weird, uh, weird background behind this project. So, yeah. yeah, it was fun doing this research. This is definitely one of those kind of more esoteric oddities of the bargain bin. Mystic Moods Orchestra is very easy to find. And it was always just kind of intriguing and confusing to me a little bit. There's connection to Mobile Fidelity Records. There's music on these records that are sometimes good and sometimes just absolutely terrible. It's a mixture of easy listening and nature sounds. There's provocative album covers all over the place. It's just a very strange part of record collecting. And I'm happy to enlighten everyone on the history of the mystic moods orchestra in this episode yeah absolutely and uh i think part of it too is like it feels like this whole project if you told me it was uh generated by ai that had just been fed a bunch of information from the 60s and 70s and popped out uh, i would believe you because it's just like it grabs from kind of everything uh and it's really just mind-boggling uh to go from song to song like within one record uh let alone like the entire discography it's really something else all right, well, with all that hype, I think it's time that we listen to a song. We're going to check out Universal Mind, side A, track two. Even the title's hyping it up. Thank you. 
that track uh, kind of gives you a taste of their uh, modus operandi here, which is they just kind of steal a lot from a lot of different places and uh, repackage it into something that uh, feels kind of dreamlike or like they pulled it out of the general uh, idea of what's going on at the time, um, which is kind of what made this album interesting to me. Um, I definitely have a running list of songs I feel like they took bits and pieces from, but I don't know if you guys heard any of that either in there. Would uh, one of those on the track we just listened to at the very beginning, would it be Because by the Beatles? You'd be correct, and it definitely wouldn't be the only uh, Beatles one on this album. I feel like that's a popular pulling point for this band. Yeah, the Mystic Moods Orchestra comes out of the tradition of easy listening mood music, which we have discussed previously on the show. And one of the most common features with that is basically just taking pop songs from the last few years and giving them a string-laden kind of mellow maybe melancholy kind of wistful air to them. And there was a period where this stuff was just selling like crazy. I mean, people enjoyed it for background music. People enjoyed it as kind of a uh, tool for various activities to enhance living. <laughs> to put it abstractly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we talked about that extensively on the environments episode for a while in record collecting, there was this trend of buying these records to make you more productive or to make you more relaxed or to like improve the environment focus. of your home to focus. Yeah. To have cool exotic sounds at your next uh, you know, pool party for the neighbors, et cetera. Yeah. The other part, you know, that goes along with it is uh, the amount of times I like reeled back reading sentences like the ambience of lovemaking was always a crucial part of Mystic Moods recordings. <laughs> uh, it feels like every single place where, uh, that writes about this record really hammers that home. <laughs> so, Yeah. Uh, Mystic Moods Orchestra and everything surrounding them is definitely is very campy at times. And that's part of the appeal <laughs> for me. <laughs> Seven good old fashioned seventies camp. Yep, love it. And this is a pretty deeply psychedelic influenced album in seventy three, which would have been way after that was cool. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure why that was the choice. Like the this is the kind of the tail end of the Mystic Moose Orchestra. The album we're featuring today is their 15th album in their seven years of existence at this point. In a lot of ways, this feels like maybe some kind of a desperate attempt to rebrand or appeal to a modern audience. And yet, as you said, making a like psychedelic album in 73 feels like it maybe kind of missed the mark by a few years. So, uh, it didn't seem to work. I don't think this record sold terribly well, although some Mystic Moods orchestra records were major sellers but more so in the 60s than the 70s yeah at times some of the stuff even in that track we were just listening to reminded me a little bit of music from Macbeth by the third ear band it was the soundtrack to roman polanski's Macbeth, and that had come out like the year before this so I had to wonder if that was also an influence. Could be. Yeah, that track we listened to kind of reminds me a little bit of the soundtrack work from the band Goblin as well. Definitely. Oh, yeah, who did Suspiria. Yeah, exactly. 
I think one other aspect of this album is I listened to it a few times kind of on kind of crappy speakers. And then I, I didn't get it, I guess, at first. Like, I was like, okay, I got it. But when I finally, like, sat down and listened to it in headphones, that's when kind of the full psychedelic uh, mixing experience also popped uh, that they seem to be pretty obsessed with. There's, you know, different instruments popping in and out, like far panned, hard left and right. So they really dove into the whole uh, psychedelic realm there too. Yeah. Uh, We've often thrown out the term minor masterpiece on this show. And I'm going to say that this record is kind of the opposite of that, in my opinion. <laughs> this is not one of those episodes where we're going to be praising the artists for their like visionary talents and everything. This kind of feels like accidental success, which would explain why all of their albums are so uneven. Even the ones like this, which I think are the the better of the Mystic Moods orchestra records. Like They're just taking big swings, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it just leaves you scratching your head. Yeah. But yeah, I I think I definitely am a fan of uh, albums that have that inconsistency anyways. Like, I feel like I'd rather try people take those big swings and miss than just, you know, throw on an album from the dollar bin that just is all right. (laughs) Um, This definitely has its highs and lows, uh, which I love. (laughs) It's highly interesting, for sure. And you mentioned hearing it on a good system being what kind of sold you on the record. One of the things that really inspired me to finally uh, pick a Mystic Moods record and do an episode is when I realized that there's the connection to Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab. Are you guys familiar with that label? Is that the one that does the half-speed masters? Yes. They're certainly not the only label to do half-speed masters, but they were one of the earlier very successful high-profile audiophile labels. And one of the distinctive marks is they would have that banner over the top of the reissues of the albums they would do that said half speed mastered. What does that mean? It's a mastering technique where you're actually using the mastering machine at half speed. So there is less rumble from the machinery and you get less noise um, imprinted onto the record. I'm sure there's more that goes into it than just that, but that's my basic understanding um mobile fidelity does a variety of just very high quality re-recordings often of like classic rock and jazz and pop and for a long time we're kind of the industry standard for high quality audio recordings yeah those are usually pretty expensive releases the those versions yeah oftentimes the mobile fidelity edition of an album is the most valuable and sought after version of that album that tracks with my very little experience with this band which primarily consists of downloading a surround sound flac file of one of their albums and putting it on my surround sound system and like the quality of the sound was good, but the songs were awful. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think that's also part of why it didn't really like click for me at first too, is because like the songs are definitely sometimes passable, I'd say. Um, but like from a mixing standpoint, it's just like really impressive when you actually do listen to it with headphones or on a surround system. Um, kind of the clarity they're able to get with such a like variety of instrumentation and things. It's like clearly the focus of these records, which yeah, like they should be listened to that way if you're going to do it. 
do we want to listen to another song, hear more of that high fidelity before we go forward? Absolutely. And we've been talking a lot about how hit or miss these records are and maybe throwing a little shade. Um, So let's go ahead and play probably the best song in the entire Mystic Moods Orchestra catalog, Cosmic Sea. (laughs) I thought you were going to say in the entire world. In the entire world. It's close. This song rules. It kind of doesn't make sense how awful some of the Mystic Mood stuff is in comparison to how amazing this song is. This is this song is the reason why I picked this record. When I decided I wanted to do a Mystic Moods Orchestra, I had a couple in mind that were already in my collection, but I went and did some research like what are the records that people seek out the most from Mystic Moods. And this one was pretty clearly top of the stack. One of the reasons being that it has been championed by none other than Cut Chemist and DJ Shadow, who sampled it on their Brain Freeze mix back in 1999. Those are reliable sources. Absolutely. So without further ado, here is side A, track five, Cosmic C. Did they just become Leon Haywood? Yeah, they somehow just for one song became one of the greatest bands of all time. I don't really even understand it. Just everything about that track rules so hard. 
Yeah, I think that's another one that like as soon as I heard that once again with like headphones and like that the snare hits with the, you know, far panned reverb and just like everything just sounds so funky and spacey and locked in. And it's like I'd be this band's biggest fan if everything <laughs> sounded uh, even uh, close to that song. It's awesome. But yeah. if every song sounded like that, this record would never be in the dollar bin. So so true yeah sometimes you got to deal with a few duds on an album to be able to get it for an affordable price so true that's what we're here to talk about (laughs) so did you find anything about the uh like session players on this or anything because all i could find was essentially for each session it was just a ragtag group of freelance studio musicians so i feel like that's a huge part of the uh guess inconsistencies in their records is maybe it's just a really good day in the studio with this group of people for this song so that's entirely possible yeah it's very hard to find information on the players on any of their records i think bud shank was involved in a few of them early on but probably not this and who knows it could be a different lineup track to track on here it's yeah it's just studio people um, the, the only names you learn about are Brad Miller, the main guy behind the whole project, and then the various arrangers, songwriters, and producers that he would hire. And it was kind of a revolving cast of people. So Mystic Moods Orchestra is certainly not a real band by normal metrics. They were a studio project that did not have a consistent lineup or songwriters at all. They're not Steely Dan, Jeremy, because... <laughs> <laughs> Those were the same songwriters every time. Well, so tell me about this Brad Miller then. He's he seems like the brainchild. In a way. <laughs> well, he Brad Miller is going to be the main subject of this episode, even though he at this point has kind of only a minor involvement with this band. But let's let's dig in and I will enlighten everyone as we go. So Brad Miller was born in the year 1939 in Southern California. From an early age, he was obsessed with sound and trains. He spent a lot of his early years just hanging out at train yards, watching the cool trains. And as a teenager, he traveled the country, sleeping in his car on a minimal budget and trying to make the best possible recordings he could of the last active steam trains. In 1958, he self-released his first train sound. (laughs) Very normal. Yeah. (laughs) All of our bios usually start this way. It's either they're obsessed with trains or sing in church, you know. (laughs) One or the other, yeah. He's going like full low max on trains here. Yeah. In 1958, he self-released his first train sounds record on his new label, Mobile Fidelity, which made so much sense to me. Like I've only known that name in connection with the audiophile label and never really thought too much about why it's called mobile fidelity, but it's because the original intent was train sounds records. He was out there moving around, getting some, getting some good field recordings. (laughs) His first record was called memories in steam and was quickly followed by steam in Colorado and great moments of steam railroading all in that same year, (laughs) 1958 (laughs) around this time. Sound effects records were really trendy. Uh, does anybody know why? Uh, 1958. I'm fully at a loss at this point as to what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) This is in the 1950s, Sean. Yes. Late fifties. 
Why were people buying well, sound effects records? Normies were buying sound effects records in the late fifties. What was going on? No guesses. They're like playing pranks on their friends. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. The people of the late fifties, real pranksters. I tell you what. <laughs> no, this was the advent of stereo. Oh. So everyone was hearing stereo sound for the first time, and records that exploited that were very popular, including sound effects records, the sounds of the drag strip, etc., or nature sounds records. And oftentimes they would just be generic big band and easy listening where they would just hard pan instruments and move it around just so people could put it on their new hi-fi system and be like, whoa, the sound is moving. Do you guys hear that? Can you believe it? That's... I... And the same way with my surround sounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah. Game recognized game over here. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Still do that. <laughs> so while Brad is out making these recordings, occasionally, as you would guess, sometimes natural sounds would get mixed in too with the train sounds. And in 1961, he gave one of these recordings a chance and released the album Steam Railroading Under Thundering Skies. Ooh. Which is probably the greatest album title of all time. What do you guys think? <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. I think that's the name of Taylor Swift's next album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steam railroading under thundering skies, the Taylor Swift version. <laughs> <laughs> so around this time, you know, he's uh, about three or four years into releasing train sounds and he's starting to actually get some critical acclaim high fidelity magazine did a write-up and billboard magazine talked about him and he, he's getting some hype behind what he's doing i thought that was going the other direction where you were gonna be like three or four years in he realized he should do more than train sounds but no <laughs> it's like he started it, it, getting some acclaim yeah he's it took him longer it. than that just kept dropping those train sounds records or he, he knew what his market was What's crazy to me is that they're still like valuable. Like every when I first started coming across them, I was like, no one can possibly want this. And I'd look them up and they're always, you know, worth good money still. So people still want those train sounds. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a hot commodity. Yeah. I mean, now those some of those sounds are extinct. Yeah. So the real birth of the Mystic Moods Orchestra is what we're going to talk about next. So a few years after Steam Railroading Under Thundering Skies, I'm just going to take every opportunity to say that album title, a DJ by the name of Ernie McDaniel out of San Francisco radio station KFOG did a late night experiment one year by simultaneously playing a easy listening record and Steam Railroading Under Thundering Skies. He received such a positive response to this. He was getting calls all night, mostly people saying that it was just so cool that he reached out to Brad Miller and told him about it. And Brad took this inspiration and just fully ran with it, launched the Mystic Moods Orchestra basically as a way to just recreate that experiment. He wanted to pair easy listening music with his vast catalog of nature sounds and other things. It seemed that there was a market for it. And boy, was he right. The first Mystic Moods Orchestra record came out in 1966 on Phillips Records. It's called One Stormy Night. And apparently that became the best-selling album on Phillips Records in the year 1966. It was a huge hit. Were there train sounds on it? No, he was uh, far past the train sounds at this point. <laughs> Mostly using uh, rain 
and like water sounds in between the record in between the songs or mixed in with the songs not a whole lot of trains anymore but he, he goes back to trains later on don't worry thank god yeah oh these are those watery records you were talking about yeah i i associate mystic moods orchestra most commonly with a lot of wet sounds not necessarily trains <laughs> the first album one stormy night included some just great hype um on the on the album jacket trying to get you to buy the record a small quote from it this is not merely an album of recorded music it is more much more now for the first time a truly unique listening experience awaits you an experience that will not only capture your attention but your emotions this then is your special album ready to transport you to a new world of time and space epic what do you guys what do you think (laughs) does that describe the mystic moods orchestra to you do you feel transported to a new world of time and space every time you drop the needle a little bit on this album on this This album album yeah particular for sure (laughs) (laughs) brad miller served as the executive producer of mystic moods projects he didn't write the music but he's the one supplying the nature sounds and he was there in studio to ensure that the recording process was of the highest fidelity and that the nature sounds were properly mixed in at the right volume and everything. So he was very hands-on, but he's not the guy writing the music that you're hearing. One interesting thing that uh, I had also found is that um, the collaborator on a lot of these albums is a guy named Leo Kolka, and he does a lot of kind of the arranging and that stuff. But right around when Mystic Moods was getting started, Brad and Leo had been commissioned to essentially do an installation at uh, the San Francisco airport's Hilton Inn, where they essentially like divided the room into four parts and created this uh, ongoing sound installation. That's essentially like what the Mystic Moods became, but in a real setting, um, but with kind of like flashing lights and uh, all that. Um, but it came to an end when uh, someone had a seizure when they were, you know, experiencing <laughs> the installation. And they're like, all right, well, maybe we should stick with records instead of uh, trying to do this installation thing. Yeah, I guess so. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So as I said before, there was a variety of different producers and writers that were involved in the project. One of the first guys to work with Mystic Moods was Battle Creek, Michigan's own Don Ralkey, who is most notable for producing the album The Many Moods of Murray Wilson. Are you guys familiar with that one? No, I'm familiar with Battle Creek, but <laughs> yeah. half hour down the road from us. The Many Moods of Murray Wilson. Murray Wilson was father to the Beach Boys. Well, yeah. And uh, put out a weird, easy listening record that I don't know how much involvement he even really had with. But uh, the same guy involved with the early Mystic Moods (laughs) was also involved with them. He was probably highly critical of it, at least. Yeah, at the very least. Don was also notable for being the guy to convince William Shatner to record a spoken word album. We have him to thank. We have him to thank for the Mystic <laughs> Moods Orchestra's early records and William Shatner. <laughs> that, that weird corner of pop culture. Yep. We're getting into all the weird corners with this episode. <laughs> it's a clearinghouse for that. Yeah, exactly. Later albums featured other arrangers, but kind of kept a similar formula of the mood music mixed with nature sounds 
it was a lot of originals at first, and then they kind of switched more to just covers of pop songs. And then here at the end, they were trying out originals again, but questionable originals, as we have stated. <laughs> the song titles may not share the titles with the songs they're referencing, but it doesn't stop them from referencing. <laughs> That's my favorite genre, questionable originals. <laughs> <laughs> There's the one song on here that's like, it's just Pinball Wizard. It's just like it opens up and you're like, wow, uh, this, we're just listening to Pinball Wizard right now, like five years later. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, before we finish off this bio, let's hear another song, shall we? Yeah. We're going to flip it over to side B and we're going to hear the song Four Square City Part 3, It Shall Be. I see the heavens spread before me, and as I raise a corner of the great curtain, I can reach out and touch the infinite. And through a slightly open door, I see a brighter world that Another group milking that ink spots formula. <laughs> There's a lot of very silly spoken word sections on here. And I couldn't quite figure out who is the one doing the spoken word. I don't know if that's Brad or one of the producers on here or just random studio guy. Do we know who's doing any of the singing at all? No. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> I feel like that's one of the things that bothered me the most, which is why I was asking about studio musicians, because some of like the vocals sound like really familiar. And it uh, I, I wish there was any documentation at all around for who played on this record. Yeah, it's very likely that we would recognize a handful of the names, too, with all the studio musicians we've talked about on the show. But it is a mystery. Yeah, that one in particular, 
there's a certain band that that song reminds me of. I don't think the Kinks is quite right, but something in that direction. Not Herman's Hermits. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> but the, I know what you mean though. Like the the more normal, straightforward songs on here, they all have this feeling of like you've almost heard it before, but not quite. It just sounds like a generic ripoff of something else you've already heard, but it has this weird feeling you can't quite put your finger on. Yeah, I actually wrote down a quote from uh, Leo Kolka, which was, I take a popular tune and turn it upside down and inside out. The result, you're sure you've heard the song before, but cannot identify it because it doesn't sound the same. Wow. It's a direct quote from the arranger. (laughs) Mission accomplished. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. So I mentioned before that the album artwork for Mystic Moves Orchestra is part of the appeal and uh, part of the mystery of the group. So the early albums that they released were kind of initially marketed and had the vibe of being just pleasant background mood music for maybe a quiet night at home. And then the further we get into the 60s, it's gradually shifting to more of like a slightly suggestive, these are for date night, wink, wink. And then by 1969, they pretty much dropped all pretense and just acknowledge that everyone is only listening to these records to make babies. And all of the artwork is just like soft focus nudes and couples just full on having sex on the album cover. <laughs> just slightly out of focus. <laughs> uh, album titles started being uh, like things like Love Token and Erogenous. Apparently there was one record that original pressings included a free pair of panties. Oh dear. <laughs> 70s were a wild time yeah you can either get your giant joint paper in a cheech and chong (laughs) (laughs) record yeah to be young in the 70s buying your cheech and chong and mystic moods records (laughs) taking them home having a great time wild now yeah so sales for the Mystic Moons Orchestra began to drop off quickly in the mid-70s, as they did for most exotica and mood music artists of the 60s. The final Mystic Moods records were arranged and produced by the team of Bob Todd, Don McGinnis, and Hal Wynn, with Nature Sounds by Brad Miller, of course. I tried to find as much info as I could on these three guys. They share writing and arrangement credits on this record and a few others from around this time period and they have credits on other records but they just seem like they've been kind of living mostly in this world of writing kind of generic songs that sound almost like something you know they have credits on a lot of singles and lps that i'd never heard of that aren't really worth a whole lot you know i part of me kind of wonders how much work these different arrangers and producers were actually doing you know like is their name just on it and they're collecting royalties and they just put some studio musicians in a room and pressed record and told them to make them some songs who knows the more i listen to a history of rock music and 500 songs with andrew hickey the more i realize often often (laughs) the, the credits that you see are just so they can get the money people in power getting songwriting or producer credit so they can get paid. But I can't say with any certainty in this specific case, neither can I, I mean, this record definitely has the feel of like a classic library record, which is generally the scenario I just described where 
a small band or more likely studio musicians are paid to just go in and make some songs. Sometimes they're given a structure, but just songs to be used as bed music or just things in the background on the radio and things like that. And most of the time the songs would be pretty generic and cheesy and not that great, but occasionally a band would be in the studio doing whatever they wanted and make something absolutely weird and brilliant, which is exactly the case with the record we're listening to today. Well, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Flashes <laughs> of brilliance. So after, so the Mystic Moods Orchestra were basically done by the mid seventies and Brad Miller then launched a new label called Soundbird, which released pure nature sounds, not mixed with easy listening and reissued much of the Mystic Moods catalog now with new artwork featuring even more nudity. <laughs> and then in 1977, Brad started the company for which he is now most famous, Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab. And Brad passed away in 1998, about one year before Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab closed down, and then they relaunched under new ownership later on and are still active today. One of the most notable audiophile labels. Yeah. When you said they closed down, I was like, wait, 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 hold on. <laughs> yeah. There are two different runs of mobile fidelity. Sean, Sean, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I have a question. What could it be? Name your top three favorite steam engine sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first off, those those skies have to be thundering, obviously. Yeah, before you're <laughs> listening to any steam engines. Yeah. Wait, no, I have a different question. Oh, okay. Do you have any albums like this album that you would recommend to our listeners? I absolutely do. First up, an album that I recently purchased, not even knowing that it was associated with this whole story, Brad Miller's The Storm and the Sea from 1975, one of his Pure Nature Sounds records that he put out after Mystic Moods Orchestra. It's very similar to the Environments Nature Sounds records that we featured before, but it's very good. It's got great artwork and uh, cheap, oddball stuff to pick up, you know? I love it. That makes sense with your environments, love. Mm -hmm. Speaking of environments, got to give the full official shout out to our previous episode on Irv Tybell's Environments series. We talked about Environments 2 from 1970. You pick that one up and the whole Environments catalog is great. If you like weird mood music and if you want to hear the weird story behind Irv Tybell and the Environments series, dig into that one. There's a lot of parallels between the Mystic Moods Orchestra and Environments. I mean, they both kind of started as passion projects from guys that just wanted to do something cool that they were obsessed with. And then it eventually turned into this whole strange over-sexualized marketing scheme in the 70s. <laughs> well, I don't mean to toot our collective train horn, but I'd say that's an above-average episode of ours as well. Hmm. I would have to agree. Two more recommendations real quick. Walter Scharf and his album Wilderness Trail from 1975. This is a really cool record you can find easily in the bargain bin that is a mixture of classical and nature sounds. So the whole thing kind of moves almost in like a Disney's Fantasia kind of way. 
but the different classical pieces are paired with different types of nature sound that they think fit better. And the whole thing is great. I love it. Sounds like a sonic adventure. Oh, it's a sonic adventure for sure. Last recommendation, the legendary Beaver and Kraus. Can't talk about nature sounds without talking about my dudes, Beaver and Kraus. <laughs> I would recommend their 1970 album, In a Wild Sanctuary. Notable for being one of the earliest records to combine nature sounds and music. Not the one that we talked about for Halloween a few years back. No, we talked about a different one. All Good Men. Yes. Nice. Uh, if I could throw into the ring some of my old boss's records <laughs> post Icarus, oh, yeah. which you guys talked about, he had a label called Living Music, and basically a ton of those records have a, I would say, a similar vibe in terms of combining field recordings and yeah classical music or other elements his like big song down the line was a song called wolf eyes which was him playing with a wolf so it's a lot of field recordings mixed with you know classical or jazz arrangements which definitely fits into this wheelhouse yeah uh mm. previously discussed artist paul horn also experimented with a lot of that stuff later on yeah but Connor's previous boss is Paul Winter. Mm -hmm. And that Wolf Eyes is not to be confused with former guest host John Olson's <laughs> band, Wolf Eyes. <laughs> Maybe that was the inspiration. I wonder if everyone's confused yet. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Well, maybe we should uh, wrap up this episode. Did we have any final thoughts? Yeah, real quick. If you like this record a lot, I would also recommend two other Mystic Moves records from the same time period. Clearlight, which also came out in 1973, could honestly be released with Awakening as a double album. They're very similar in mood. And then the previously mentioned Erogenous from 1974 was kind of the last hit from the Mystic Moods Orchestra. Um, also, something that can be confusing about collecting Mystic Mood stuff is they had a habit of re-releasing their albums with completely different artwork and sometimes with completely different album titles. So check the track listing <laughs> before you purchase. Yeah, this album can be known as, is it Awakening and Cosmic Force? Yeah, it was reissued later as Cosmic Force and then reissued again as Awakening parentheses Cosmic Force. I have the Soundbird reissue of Erogenous that's called City Nights slash Simple Pleasures. It's very confusing. <laughs> Collect them all. Yeah. Yeah. If you want more confusing artists after you get all the Ink Spot stuff, <laughs> look into <laughs> Mystic Moods Orchestra. Yep. Connor, before we sign off here, we mentioned Little Lost Records in Connecticut at the top. Do you want to say any more about that or anything else you have going on? Yeah, absolutely. So I run a shop with my partner, Abby, called Little Lost Records. It's in Stafford Springs, Connecticut. Um, we have a Discogs and all that where we list a lot of our stuff. But definitely if you're ever in kind of the northern Connecticut area near Boston or heading towards Boston, definitely pop on through. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I have to plug. Um, it was just a lot of fun being here with you guys today. 
Well, it was great having you. Love to have you back anytime. Maybe we'll talk about a more Paul Winter associated record next time. Oh, yeah. I'll give you all the dirt. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what did we want to leave on? What did we select to go out on? Well, you know, I love to go out on the final song on the album unless the song is terrible. And it's uh, not terrible, I would say. The last song on this record is called The Seventh Plane. And it's great. It's It's got a weird building energy that just keeps going and going to this like final climax to end this whole epic and strange record. So side B, track three, The Seventh Plane. And with that, we're out of here. I'm co-host Peter Cook. I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles. I am aspiring lawyer and CIA asset Sean Hartman. And I'm Connor Ryan. My name is Jeremy and I'm an aspiring lawyer and CIA asset. <laughs> oh my God, Jeremy, get, end this episode. <laughs> no, now you say it. It's like hot rod. What? <laughs>